0: Hey everyone, Troy Hammond here and that means you're listening to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast and on today's episode we're chatting with Frances Valentine. Frances is the CEO and founder of Academy X. Previously she actually sent up the Media Design School and off the back of that has built a bunch of companies which forms them Academy X right now. It's a phenomenal journey. It's a really cool chat you're about to hear. Someone that left home at 17, traveled the world on her own, moved to UK, moved to Turkey, came back, set up a company, grew those companies, has been phenomenal in terms of information sharing and helping AOTRO and helping all these people that are now in positions around the world because of the education that Francis was a part of. I really, really enjoyed this chat and you're going to be in for a really amazing listen or watch and however you're consuming this podcast. And so strap in. Settle down. Listen to this one from start to finish because you're really going to love it.
1: Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Style Lovers podcast brought to you by Talent Iron. I actually wrote a book which was published last year um, and I have a whole chapter it's very much a book for female entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I talk about the Goldilocks effect that I was too young, too young, too young, too young, too old. Yeah. And I was like, where did I get that middle soft bed? <laughs> where did that yeah. happen? Where do where do you you know, you're too young to be a leader, you're too old to be in tech. Where does it
0: come from? Does it come from the film industry? Like what where does that shit know. thing come from? I don't
1: know. I think I think it's probably more in tech than it is in other sectors. Yeah. There's an expectation that if you are a you know, I'm a 51 year old woman in tech yeah. who's at the front of the game. Like that just doesn't exist. Yeah, wow. Don't don't say don't don't mention I'm 51. That... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but that's the reality, yeah. and probably I felt it from the time I was 45.
0: Well, I see, I don't even think I was mature and smart enough until I hit 40. You know, to be yeah. able to make some big decisions yeah, on business think... and life. And
1: but it was literally a, a moment where I would the conversation would go from, "Wow, you're really young to be a leader." And I was in my, you know, probably in my early thirties, and yeah. you're really young to start businesses, and you're really young to do this, and and then it was like, why wow, you're really old to be in tech? I was <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell just happened?
0: Yeah, you move from a mentee to a mentor, yeah, a really yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, Whoa. Look,
1: That did happen really fast. Yeah. yeah. Do you I mean, do much mentoring? Yeah, I do a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all females, and 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 not because. of... Well, it's a bit of a feminist stance, I guess, but because I found it really hard to find female mentors when I was young. Yeah. And there's a lot more of them now, but I think there's still there's still a lot of women who um, are looking for a female mentor yeah. it's in the technology sector particularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's
0: uh, there's so many dudes out there, right? And like female heroes. Yeah. Well, it's
1: different in terms of fundraising particularly. Yeah. Like that's a really big difference in what you kind of experience. Is.
0: What do you think the difference is in fundraising for a woman?
1: Well, the the people across the other side of the table when you're looking for funding are all men.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's... Have you ever pitched to a female VC?
1: So, interesting enough, the most recent funding I got in March last year of a a PE fund out out of Sydney, I went through 12 funds, and when I looked across those 12 funds, only one female was present, and there was probably six or seven investors in each virtual room I went into. Wow. And the one that had the female was the one I went with.
0: Yeah, cool.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's it's interesting and I've I've been to a number of talks recently where I've been on a panel or had a conversation and people have challenged me on that and sort of sort of said, "Yeah, but that's because there's not that many female businesses." And then when I went through that process a year ago, I went through PwC and at the end of the whole process I went back to them and said, "Can you just tell me how many female businesses of all the ones you've put through in the last year were successful in getting fundraising?" 2 out of 100. Wow. So it's a real thing. It's, you know, I think that there is sometimes the negotiations fall over because of the misalignment in terms of, you know, shareholding or valuation or yeah. expectation on their role. Yeah. But it's really, it's quite, it's quite profound until you sit across the table and you look. And of course, that's, you know, going back to talking about age, it's really profound when you start looking how young some of these investors are. You know, they're representing yeah. funds and, you know, they're slick. They're really super slick, and and even more so when you get outside New Zealand.
0: I feel old when I'm talking to them because <laughs> yeah. like the VCs, we work with a lot of VCs for recruitment purposes, yeah. and I meet them, and they're like 25 years old, and, and they have st-
1: like you know painted on shirts, and yeah. they've just come from the gym. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know, I know, it's very and, intimidating. And you're like, what the
0: hell, you know? And I mean, they're smart, like a lot of them are like oh, ex lawyers, and you know, smart. like super smart people, but. I just felt old when I was chilling with most of them. And yeah. yeah it's and
1: they're very driven in a, in a very, you know, and very non-Kiwi ambitious way. Yeah. You know, so that's then itself is a little bit like, you know, we're all, if, you, if you're in the entrepreneurial game, you're ambitious, but yeah. there's an, another type of ambition that comes with private equity and yeah. venture capital, I think, that yeah. you just don't see.
0: Do you do any investing now yourself?
1: Yeah, I do. Not, not hugely. Um, and... But all local, all sort of startup up sort of stage and uh, getting people going more than, without any expectation of returns. So yeah. helping out in that way is probably more my jam.
0: That's my type of investment. I go, you can have this money. I'll probably never see it again, but I feel better yeah. about giving and it And occasionally to you. it comes back and you've yeah.
1: invested in things. And sometimes it makes a huge difference for someone getting off the ground and you think it may come back in a different way. You know, yeah. I sort of they'll play it forward. And, you know, I think that, that I find really great enjoyment of doing and helping people at that really early stage when they just like got clearly a great idea Got yeah. the, got the smarts, but they they just don't have the equity or the kind of the capital to to go. I just need to hire a really good person.
0: Yeah. When was that first time for you? When was that first time in your life that you were like something was buzzing around in your brain and you just had to get it out of you?
1: In terms of an idea to start yeah. something. Yeah. Oh, in my teens.
0: Yeah. And what was it?
1: So I uh, I went from uh, Tamaki Makoto to London at seventeen. Still don't know why. Like I still can't go back to that moment on a one-way ticket with no friends there. You know, this is pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-credit cards, and so.
0: As a a father, if my seventeen-year-old daughter said to me, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to London. No credit cards, no cell phone," I'd be like, "The fuck, you're not." Yeah, well, this
1: is the weird (laughs) thing about it because my kids have come and gone past seventeen, and I was at the going at the time, going one, they would never have asked. Yeah, they just it just wasn't even on the radar. Mm. And and two, if they had asked, I would have been the same. I would have been like. Hell no. Yeah, <laughs> no yeah, yeah. So I don't know what it was. I, I literally have gone back to that moment many times and said, Watch. But it would have defined your life. It right? totally defined my life. And I arrived in the late, very late 80s. So, you know, almost on the cusp of 90, 1990. And when I looked at what was going on in London, it was like the tech sector was just booming. Like mm. it was suddenly everything was digital and everything was tech and the big beige boxes that started arriving on everyone's desks. And I just was like smitten. Like mm. this idea that technology was going to to frame the future, and, and and you know people were starting to talk about the internet and multimedia was starting to be a thing, and people were talking about moving away from you know if you were in the in the sort of the design industry away from bromides and kind of like these high resolution photography files yeah. into digital, and and it just it was just the most exciting. So at that moment in time, I knew that somehow I was going to end up in in some form of technology.
0: Did you have an uh... Like a, a, an entry into technology before that?
1: No. So, no, uh, no, no. I mean, you know, I'm of <laughs> the, the time when technology was not a, a subject. It was, mm. I, I, was a, I was a real tinkerer. Like, I loved the idea of just kind of, you know, anything that was, I mean, even in early games of gaming, you know, handheld kind of devices and Game Boys and things like I was always that person. Yeah. Um, so I, I had that, but I mean, a, a personal computer was way outside my reach yeah. at that stage. It probably wasn't until I literally walked into companies that had a computer that I was like, "Wow, that's not this big, huge thing that sits in a room. That's actually something that someone personally can own." Mm. And um,
0: so, what was that idea then? Well,
1: the the idea was, I I don't know if I was specific around what the idea was, but I knew that Tech. there was a a, a technology that would be part of my future. And I knew I wasn't wasn't going to be a hardcore someone in tech. Like I knew yeah. it wasn't it was going to be peripheral to that. But I knew I wanted whatever I did first it was going to be taking something that was traditional and disrupting it with technology. Mm. That was and and I, I think it wasn't really probably until, you know, a few years later when I started thinking about what that might be. And, you know, I had a kind of an interesting time living in Europe because um I left London after a year it wasn't wasn 't really not not so much it wasn 't my jam i just didn 't like the weather yeah. <laughs> and, and i I moved to Turkey to live there and which was far more my jam and yeah. but but if you look at what was going on then so I moved it,
0: to Turkey at eighteen
1: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it again it sounds all kind of a little yeah. crazy uh and some of the experiences you know I look back and I just go that 's probably not one i 'm going to tell my kids. You know, just <laughs> and not not because it was it was just taking risks that by yeah. today's standards you wouldn't take. Yeah. You do, you, know,
0: do you think as parents that we coddle model coddle model coddle model our kids? Model model, our kids too much these days. Because I was yeah. the same. Like I moved out of home at sixteen. Yeah. I left school. I had to leave school early, the family issues and likes. But and but I think it gave me such a good path to drive and succeeding because I had to, you know, and then these days now my kids, I'm, I'd be scared if they move out of home before they're 22, 23.
1: Honestly, oh, no, I, I told my kids, 18, that's it. You yeah. know, you finished school, 18. You, I'm you, sending you to you Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, but, you know, look, I do think we, we've, we're putting too many labs of fear across our kids. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of kids who would do far better if they got independence earlier and made decisions that were just sort of free-flowing, and as opposed to the sort of the linear, mm. get on the escalator and stay on and jump off where everybody else jumps off, and um, you know everyone I talk to and anyone probably from you know forties through fifties and, and beyond will have memories of, you know, getting up in the morning, putting jumping on the bike, and saying, "I'll oh, see in a couple of days, Mum. I'm going to go and see some friends." And yeah. school holidays where,
0: Didn't you know, you, you,
1: you went you went to a beach town, whatever yeah. one you had a, some kind of connection to. And your parents would see you at the end of you know two or three weeks when you yeah. made it home and with no contact, yeah. you know people would be mortified at the very idea that if their you know sixteen year old went to to the mount for three weeks without contact, contact. Mm. You yeah. know, so I think we have definitely um, created a, sort of an expectation of constant connectivity with our kids, and that means there's a safety net for them all the time. And I don't yeah. know you can you can't really kind of create that we can't fabricate that because of course you have the technology it means you can stay in touch so you're not going to ignore the fact there is a phone where you can just text and say just checking in yeah so it's, it's unfair to sort of turn around to parents today and say no you should just not reach out to your kids because yeah. they can i mean yeah. back then you couldn't so it wasn't it was we were a product of our circumstances in our time
0: mm. interesting Interesting topic we're on now. Like, say, so we're talking about education of children or, you know, in some sort of weird segue there that I'm trying to get to. But you now find yourself in, like, something where you've got an education platform which is trying to change the traditional structure and hierarchy of university. <laughs> Talk me through, how did you get to Academy X? Okay, so
1: 1998. Uh, so I... Uh, a, strange, a, a new story, actually, I... Uh, So with with my mother, we formed Media Design School. Yeah. And so it was the first school in the country that really focused on high-end creative technology sector. So if you think around the film, animation, game industry, it it became very quickly the sort of the school, the place to go. And a lot of people in the first few years, you know, this is 25 years ago, were... um, Migrating from analog to digital, so yeah. there were a lot of people sort of mid-career suddenly they were graphic designers and going, "Whoa, what's all this Photoshop?" and "What yeah. are we going to do Illustrator?" and multimedia were coming out, and people were starting to use all of these, you know, Dreamweaver and you know all these yeah. kind of these kind of new technology and new um, code. And so, you know, I, I'd taken that fasc- fascination with with technology, and when I'd landed back into New Zealand, and going, "How do we let people know about this?" and and at the time, my mother had been in the travel industry, so this is not something in, in where she had been. But she was fascinated because not only myself, but my brother, who, who's you know, been a video editor for years, he was trying to get into that sector, and he was trying, no one's teaching this stuff. Mm. And so it really was spawned out of this idea that we didn't have an institute that was really designed for professionals to go and to do this stuff and, and compress frames to it wasn't about going in and doing a three-year degree. Mm. And so that was really it. And so I was there for 14 years. And when I left, three years before um, I left, um, the the whole organisation was sold to an American organisation. So Mm. I stayed on as the chief executive. And by that stage, you know, we were a a pretty big force across, particularly Asia-Pacific, around Mm -hmm. that sector, particularly around animation and and game development. And... um, Do you
0: think, because, like, game development, like... It blew up here in New Zealand. Do you tie what you did to helping the industry flourish? We were
1: certainly, yeah, the the first, and and I was on the Game Development Association and I was part, hardcore in that games world. So the people that, you know, there was a group of us there like um, Mario Winans and um, Maru Nihonihu and I and a whole bunch of other game kind of people who are either making games. And actually, if you go back to those days, in the early days, you know, pre pop it was she interactive yeah. they were making barbie games yeah like we would literally be talking around the table at board meetings about you know licensing and getting access to dev kits which were a million dollars just to get the dev kits to create a barbie game wow. and it was all licensed work no one yeah. was creating anything original and so when, when the the game development program started and there was a programming stream and an art stream so there were there were two and actually i think it evolved over time even to a story stream That was really it. Like, if you wanted to go into games, unless you sort of went from a comm science software engineering pathway into it, it was the qualification. Hmm. I'm I'm sure there's more now. You know, I don't know. But I think there's a number of things that happen. I mean, we launched Media Design School at the same time they were looking to start the Lord of the Rings series in the trilogy. And they needed a huge amount of 3D modelers, animators, riggers, And so the very first conversations were with Weta going... We need a whole bunch of people. We're currently bringing them all into the country. Can you can you actually develop this talent? Mm. So I was thrown into the sector, like just boots in, get in, and fully immersed in some of the funny conversations. So I think back because we were having to parallel import Macs into the country because the cost to get them through the official channels was r- ridiculous, and it was a wait list of years. And so if you parallel imported through other countries – you could you could bring them, but they came with no warranties, and so you had this whole, you know, huge setup startup budgets so have been poured into technology, and these were expensive at the time. Mm. And then you kind of had this thing of like, if something goes wrong, no one's going to fix them because you've taken you, you haven't really got the proper channel to go there. It wasn't illegal; it just wasn't the official channel. Yeah. And and then when you put that aside, then the very first time we started getting three D files, and I think I remember the very first time someone produced a fifty meg file. And we were like, "What do we do with it?" Like, (laughs) the cost of an external drive was hundreds and hundreds of dollars. You couldn't back it up onto the computer because it was a shared computer. Because no one, no student had their own. Yeah, you know, it was way too expensive. So you literally had labs of computers.
0: No cloud computing at that stage. No
1: cloud, and so there's this whole thing about, you know, there was we were always playing catch up with how do you, you know, the files were getting larger, the resolutions and things were getting bigger, but the backups were getting you know, increasingly hard to come by more and more expensive because the the, the jump in resolution was faster than the jump in storage. And so, you know, you're just playing this game all the time. And, Mm. you know, so I look back and when people think about some of the stories, and I know if you go back in the days of early wetter and when they would be literally flying people over the files and putting them on planes in the evening to fly into LA, and people would go down into the Auckland water, um, waterfront when big cruise liners came in, the big boats, yeah. and actually hotspot off their Wi-Fi because it was satellite. <laughs> and so you'd sit with a laptop and you'd be using this this connection that was faster because they had to have satellite on the boat than what we could get through dial-up.
0: That is amazing.
1: So insanity. And it was yeah. only, and a lot of this happened 20 years ago. You know, it was in the time frame of my, my children. like they, mm. they were born into this time when we were still slow dial-up and where I lived rurally outside of the city, it was you know actually a satellite connection and we had a, a total of three gigabytes a month.
0: Wow. What do, you, what do you look back on fondly and think that those are the moments that helped me actually to the person I am now?
1: Look, I, I look back when I left there and it was just under eight thousand students had gone through and and had become qualified, <clears throat> and and I look back and with a huge pride on that because I think, what if in that moment where where you know the decision wasn't made to create that institute and you know Media Design School is still an institution its own right now and it's very successful, you know what what happens if you didn't and what would have happened to those people where would they have gone and mm. and actually the same thing now where my, so Academy X is an evolution of the Mind Lab and Tech Futures yep. Lab, and it's been a, which I'll come to, but we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary. And in that 10 years, very similar numbers, it's almost probably identical numbers, uh, have have been qualified, uh, albeit in you know, a postgraduate level as opposed yep. to undergrad. And, and you do have this moment of there are just literally thousands of people out there who have gone on to do amazing things. And there, in, in my LinkedIn, I'm literally blown away by people who we were teaching 20 years ago who are literally across the world running these global companies and startups that they've turned into these multi-million dollar massive success stories. And I'm like, wow, going back far enough, there's an inkling of, you know, we sort of saw those rock stars as they came through, but you yeah. just watched their trajectory of where they went to. If you're in education, you you can't help but get super excited by yeah. by that knowledge that there's a little piece of it that perhaps sparked when they were learning with you that took them on this journey to just this, these great heights mm. and and that never stops. And they reach out and often, you know, you just get these amazing messages and I probably get one once a week where there's just someone saying, just checking in to let you know what I'm doing these days. And that's cool. That's really cool. very cool. cool. Yeah. I, and, and that's, for me, it's like an addiction. It's like this addiction to learning and getting people on that journey, uh, you know, so that you you really have this sort of point of view where you sort of sit back and go, you know, decisions you make, sometimes you you are so isolated from what happens next. Mm. And I'm sure for anyone who develops software or anything else, that the same thing when you start to realise the impact it has on people's lives. And I love that about learning. You can, I can look someone in the eyeball and go, tell me your story. And they can go back to the point in time when they made decisions, which you may have had an impact on.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. So you, so you finished up there as the CEO, and then you decide to go again and start to build something again. What happened to you? Did, you, did your Was your mum still working? No, she
1: had retired by that yeah, stage. Yeah yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. didn't yeah. get mum. So <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So, it
1: was so sold. It, yeah. it was sold to a US group. Um, it's since been sold to another US group since. Um, so I actually spent the last three years when I was there setting up equivalent institutes, what we call a box within a box in their American terminology, which was like pick, it, pick up the media design score and pop it into other Other institutes around the world that they other universities they owned, so um, we started with uh, one in Santa Fe in New Mexico, and went San Diego, uh, Milan, uh, and then they were going into Malaysia and Australia. When I sort of left at that stage, and they're part of a a big global group now, Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 so you know I had sort of three years of of that kind of exciting work as well because I've been out of the country, kind of really playing into this global space, which really gave me the idea about the next business I wanted to to form which was uh, the mind lab. Yeah. Which and was, did
0: you straight into that or did you take some Yeah, I, I had three
1: months between. Yeah. um just forming the team. I managed to have of course I had a really huge community of incredible talent that I knew because I taught them. Mm. <laughs> so that I was like okay, I want one of you and one of you. Yeah. <laughs> and and actually the the initial team I think were eight of us on day 1 uh when we started and um you know, we we basically started in a shared office and we were looking for space. And there's another whole side story. We, we'd actually signed up in a formal lease in the Wynyard Quarter before the Wynyard Quarter was at the very beginning of what it was going to be. And so the, the grand plans were there, all of the yeah. – the, everything was there. The contract was signed, the lease was agreed, the, the fit-out team had designed all how we are going to be. And then they turned around and said to me literally a week before we were about to move in, saying, hey um, – Halsey Street, which is the entrance of where our building was, we're about to rip it up and put in a whole lot of pipes and a whole lot of stuff. And I'm like, well, how do we get access to our building? They're like, well, we're going to have to do some kind of covered walkways from behind the building. And I said, well, how long is this going to be for? And they said, oh, three years. (laughs) And we were just like, how do we get out of this lease? And... So that was a really tricky because you know every dollar was tight, yeah. and suddenly I had to get legal to get me out of a lease for something that had never been disclosed. And so it was like, who said? She said? Did they? You know? So
0: that's not a great way to start a business. It so, was a terrible yeah. way, and yeah. and then
1: we had to find a new location and you know so forth. But um, so we started, and the idea of the Mind Lab in 2013 was I was fascinated that my children, who at the time were sort of early teenagers, were I was saying, why are they learning? The exact same things as I did. Mm. This is crazy. I've just been the last fourteen years at sort of at the forefront of of you know education and technology, and suddenly I'm back into looking at them bringing textbooks home. Yeah, and I was like, this is there's got to be a better way. So the initial premise was, how about we bring in kids between the age of sort of seven and twelve in their school years and come in as school groups and we'll teach them all the stuff that I've been teaching to adults for the last fourteen years. So awesome. they will learn to code and to animate and to do, you know, game development and all sorts of stop motion and fun mm. things and and, and that was incredibly um, timely because suddenly schools were really interested in this creative output. So we're looking at new ways. Technology was becoming a little more accessible, and so that grew really, really quickly. And we went Auckland, then we opened in Tarafati and Gisborne, Wellington, and Christchurch. Mm-hmm. And school groups would just come on buses, and you know we'd come through. They'd put it part of their, their learning experience of their, of their school. And then the story is, you know, one I've told many times that we had these teachers coming in with these students saying, "This is awesome." love the engagement of these kids. They're so into this. We have no idea to replicate this back in the classroom. Like, how do we do it? And then that was the kind of the aha moment where I was like, okay, we need to teach teachers. Mm. And having come out of a tertiary environment with me to design school, I knew exactly how to do that. What I didn't know is how would I find a way to get formal qualifications quickly? Mm. Because that's a very long process. Like, you can't just go, oh, I think I'll create a postgraduate certificate. Yeah, like, boot camp for teachers. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be, you know, it's a whole NZQA funding. Yeah. It's a very regulated, compliant sector. And so I had to think about what would that look like. And what I did at that time was I partnered and into, into a partnership with Unitech, mm. as New Zealand's largest polytech at the time, still is, under Te Pūkenga. And so pre-Te Pūkenga, So I went to Rick, E the C at the time and said, Look, this is what I want to do and he was like, This is awesome, it fits with what we're doing. We've got a program, a postgraduate certificate that we think framework will work really well with what you want to do. Let's work with NZQA. Let's do this. And we so we created the first qualification, which was a postgraduate certificate in digital and collaborative learning for teachers. Wow. And lots
0: of first in your life, Francis. Like lots of first things. Lots of lots of first things. Yeah. And,
1: and and we also had some really big challenges with working with Nzqa because we wanted this, the teachers to be able to submit their evidence of learning through things like video yeah, well. and you know and and podcasts and things that were because the very nature of what we're trying to teach is like don't go back to writing essays. yeah, and they were really great. They worked with us and we had had this ability to do it. but what was really amazing is a typical postgraduate class is around you now ten to twenty people. we put it into market and we had, about four, four or five weeks before it started, and we were like, "Do you think we'll get ten or twenty people?" And we got two hundred and fifty, wow. and we were like, "Okay, we're onto something here." Mm. And then it just grew; it just went off. And then, of course, we we basically started looking at other types of learning and what are other sectors getting out of out of true education, yeah. and thinking about you know Good. what does a banker need? And, Can we know, just
0: put a pin in that for a second? What advice would you give to someone that's out there right now? That's that's probably younger or, or, or it doesn't matter how old they are, I guess, that's thinking, how the fuck do you just jump in and create something, do something first time? How do you go against the grain? And what sort of energy and passion and thinking do you need to do something like that?
1: Yeah, and look, I was in my 20s when I first, like me, design school was still in my 20s. So, mm. so, you know, they. I didn't know, you know, how, I mean, I'd come back into the country, I didn't have networks and things. New Zealand is fantastic because you are only one phone call away from talking to the person you need yeah. to talk to. Yeah. And I think there is an element of at any age, but when you're young, there is an element where you can be kind of bullshit because you can play into that because people have a, a great admiration for someone who sort of comes in their 20s and says, this is what I want to do. Can you help me yeah. to do this? Including government agencies, including the bank, including you know people you may need to talk to. I think there is an element of you can get doors open then you actually have to know your stuff. Like mm. you have to have a business plan. You have to be able to talk about how you plan to, to you know, create revenue. But I think doing things first is actually easier than doing things second. Because if the person who did it first is amazing, then imme- immediately there's a kind of a benchmark. Are you as good as them? Can you yeah. do it as well as they do? What if you're not as good? And what if the market share is not what you think? So if you're coming in first and saying, hey, I want to teach people how to do animation, and they're like, "What software does it use?" And I'm like, "Oh, it's you know, it's it's called Maya." And, and and they're like, "Okay." And do you know anything about it? And we're like, "Yeah, yeah." You're bluffing all the way. You're going, "Yeah, absolutely." This is you know, this is, this is you know, global, world standard. Everybody uses it in the film industry. No one's no one knows any differently. Yeah. Like it literally. <laughs> so there's an element of bluffing and naivety that kind of works, but you still need to know the business plan. Like yeah. it's so, I, I think if you've got this idea, as long as you're actually solving a true problem. And that, you know, everyone will say this, but there are people you, you know, I talk to, and of course, now we have, um, you know, multiple, thousands of students who are coming up with ideas every year right in front of me. And sometimes I'm just looking saying, but are you in love with the idea? Yeah. Because it's just something you know, or is it you've actually heard this being asked for, you know, people constantly saying, gosh, I really wish that there was something that did this. Mm. But I do think um, you you just have to have, there's a little bit of tenacity that you have to have. I mean, I'm actually an introvert, so it wasn't like I wasn't comfortable going up to people and saying, can you help me? You know, I would much rather have just done everything from a back room and trying to do it on a, on a phone. Mm. But you realise there's a point where you just have to get out there. And I never once got one person who turned to me and said, this is a really terrible idea. Some people sort of said, are you sure? You know, I, yeah. you know, this is a big risk. People talk about risk in a way that now makes me laugh because everybody thinks everything is risky. That's not something they're familiar with.
0: Yeah, if, if you go to people that have never taken risks and ask them, should I do this? Largely, they're going to say no because they're worried about you. And they're, exactly. sometimes they're, they're our biggest roadblocks, you know, in terms of people that care about us, telling us, don't do it because I worry you might get hurt.
1: You know, I think that there you can find in everyone in their lives a time when they did take a risk, but often they don't see it because it wasn't a business risk. Mm. It could have been something physical risk, something in sporting. It could have been something when they decided risking to take you love, know. in love, risk yeah. Absolutely. So I think, you know, I always go back and try to find where people are saying, you know, when did you feel that adrenaline of risk-taking that you did and it panned out? Yep. And then tell me when it didn't pan out. And most people go, oh, actually, mm. there wasn't a time when I did something risky and it didn't pan out. Mm. Most times... You know, you, if you follow that intuition, you follow your heart, you follow that drive. It takes you on a path to something actually that's really, really good. So, yeah. you know, there is a process. I think that the more you take risk on, and it works for you, the better you get at risk. You know, yeah. and that's why I think you know you have people who are constantly creating new new entities and new environments and new businesses because once you've done it a few times and you understand that you know debt is your friend and and you understand that it's you know the worst that can happen as long as you stay on the right side of the law and and you're ethical and you do all the right things, actually, there's not much that can go wrong.
0: Yeah, I I find that if I'm a a serial entrepreneur, always starting companies and people laugh because whenever whenever I catch up with them for a beer or coffee, they're like, what have you started now? Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, I find that I'm only comfortable now when I'm outside of my comfort zone. Yeah, I'm the same. And yeah, yeah, there's something crazy and stupid and lovely about that, but yeah.
1: And, And for me, it is a little bit of, I love being around people who are really pushing boundaries, yeah. the conversation. So you know, I've just come back a couple of days ago from an experience in Portugal called The Dream. 500 people from around the world on a private um, home, which was a castle, as they, as they are. But 500 people who are at the very edge of the biggest breakthroughs in the world, who are like these incredible big thinkers. And, you know, I, I'm in these environments, and, I, and and it was a holiday. So, you know, people go, even on holiday, you go and study? Like, you're crazy. But I just love when you throw yourself in these immersive yeah. environments of people with these big, big ideas. So the, the downside is every time I go away, my staff go, uh-oh. Yeah,
0: she comes back with oh, something. Oh, <laughs> no, there's going to be – and, you know,
1: this afternoon, you know, even actually before I came in here, I was sitting in my car putting together some kind of images and things of, of – of the experience so I can share it with staff this afternoon and I've got all these ideas that are coming from it. And I think, you know, when you see other people who are taking even bigger risks, like we're people who are literally at, you know, massive brains who are going out and doing things in some kind of really niche science and pushing things in genetics or you know, in CRISPR technology or quantum, or you know, you've got people who are doing these really big, expensive things that they can't even start what they're doing without a hundred million dollars in their back pocket. Yeah. Then you start going, what am I worrying about? You know, I'm this little person on a, a small country on a tiny planet in a you in know solar system and inside a universe. Like, what am I really worried about? I'm What's here for a nanosecond. I'm here for a nanosecond, yeah. and you know, I, I always have that when I have that moment of. Am I crazy? Am I, am I, should I be doing this? I literally zoom out way out into the solar system and kind of look back at Earth in my mind and go, like, you're literally one of eight billion people. Yeah, split second, do something, do something that really makes you feel mm. good.
0: Do you think that, does that feeling come from because you want to leave legacy or does that feeling come from because you want to live in the moment?
1: Both. Both. Legacy is really important to me that I, I don't want at the end of my life to have regrets that, you know, that I had access to do things and I had privilege to do things and I had the brain to do things that I didn't. Mm. Um, So, you know, I want to make sure that my time here is meaningful and and I don't want the idea that I could have, should have, would have, you know, and I think people, too many people I meet like that. You know, I spend a lot of time with people who work in corporates and they're coming out to learn and every day is a grind for them. Every day they feel they're not contributing. Never want to be that person. And I think the other one for me, living in the moment is is, you know, you really do appreciate as you get older and as your kids get older how fast life goes. And, and if you live for the past or you sort of think, oh, sometime in the future, then you'll never do it. Yeah. And so it is about today. And and I think for me, I, actually the book I published last year called Future You was sort of focusing on you need to actually plan to do things every day so that you are, the future you is something that you're really consciously making a decision about.
0: How much do you plan? Do you... Like in terms of if someone's trying to reinvent themselves or think about the next wave, do they just have a, a dream of a high level and then iterate to there, or yeah. do they really path it out?
1: No, I, I mean, I'm my way is one north star. Yep. go for it. Yeah, and actually, you know, scramble along the way, and you'll you'll be wins and losses, but snakes and ladders all yep. the way there. But actually, if you if you, I mean, I'm not a planner. Like I can't plan in that way because. Things changed way too much, and and also because I, I work in the in the very edge of technology. So you know, if you if you were trying to think last year, I mean, you you, know, you just look at you know, generative AI as yeah. if you hadn't if you hadn't put that in your plan right now, you'd be in a bit of dire straits because yeah. you know. So you have to kind of go with the, the sort of the, the swings of of what happens, and then you know I, I always laugh because you know you sort of go last year we were all talking about the metaverse and everything was in and. And NFTs, and it was all like, yeah, you know, it's all hype, 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 and then it goes crash down because generative AI comes in, and, and, you know, you watch stock prices change and, and sort of the adoption curve increase, and then you kind of get the exponential effect, and so, you know, I, I always say to people, you know, you, you can't predict anything in this space, you know, it's yeah. and there's going to be things that will crash and burn fast and some will, will be slow burn and they'll eventually just take off and you'll go, wow, well, where did that come from? And there will be things that are just slowly come through and AI is a good example. It was very, very slow for many, many decades and suddenly, you know, it becomes accessible. You know, and we saw that with desktop computing. We saw that with mobile yeah. phones. We see that with, you know, so many things where it's, it's, it's very niche and then it becomes very expensive and I always watch any form of technology or trend by the very super wealthy. So you find the, the multi-billionaires in the world and see where they're investing, you see what they're doing, yeah. see what they're wearing, see what they're, you know, those people spend so much time on advisors and, and you know, people who are analysts and they're doing, they, yeah. they've got all the resources at their, at their fingertips to make decisions. They are, they don't spend money kind of willy-nilly, they're not, yeah. they are very, very deliberate as opposed to, you know, people who might be, you know, multi-millionaires who might be going, they're never aspiring to be a billionaire, so they, they they'll take much bigger risks. Yeah, billionaires don't. They yeah. they are very deliberate. And I sort of watch in things, and there are so many things. And i would be interested to see with the provision with the the new mixed reality Apple device now. Yeah, do they get picked up by the super wealthy? Do, do they start playing in that space, or is it going to be another Google Glass? You know, so yeah, we'll it's, see. it's
0: it's interesting. What about going back a little bit on what you just said? What about digital humans in terms of like online education? Do you think digital humans will have the, will people be able to empathise with a lecturer being a digital human?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think for a long time, I mean, we've had obviously early um, applications of that with Soul Machines here in New yep. Zealand, but I think that even today, I mean, there's been millions poured into a number of companies who are doing really high end digital humans. Education's been democratised to the point where anyone can be educated now, which is amazing. Yeah. But obviously, you can't have. Um, a specialist for every single kind of version of that. You do need, you know, you, you need to be able to turn the knowledge that is really powerful into a delivery mechanism that people can relate to. So they need to be able to speak the language. They need to be identifiably relatable. So it could be ethnicity, age, yep. etc. So. You know, you might have the, the world's best deep expert on machine learning who's a seventy-year-old white man who speaks English. Well, that's no use to someone who's in Uruguay. Yeah. So let's make sure that if that's going to be content that we want to be able to communicate, let's make sure it's someone who's relatable to the student yeah. and has the you know the, the the language, all the things, the cultural aspect. If if they point at the sort of the, almost the uncanny valley, you can't tell the difference between because you get lost in the fact that they're so believable that you forget that they're not, then. To me, that just makes education more accessible. Yeah. You know, too many people, um, you know, are being taught by people they can't relate to and therefore there's no connection, they can't contextualise it. I think digital humans are a big part of that and, of course, that's so accessible now. Mm. In fact, it's terrifyingly accessible because, you know, it goes into the whole how does it work in a democracy when you've got deep fakes and yeah. 3D humans and digital humans that are so believable that you literally, even with the very best detectors, cannot pick is this a real person or not?
0: Yeah. Wow. So on that, so Academy X, which is your platform, how did that? So that's a collective of the the, the previous companies that you sort of yeah. Founded. It,
1: it feels yeah. So we started with the Mind Lab, and that was all around education, and then it sort of broadened into sustainability. Then we when we launched Tech Futures Lab, which is all around this cutting edge of technology for yeah. business people, and so and both of them very similar kind of profiles, female skewed. Yeah. Which is education globally? Female education across the world now is female skewed. Yeah, and our students are typically in their 30s and 40s, and they go up to we have even scholarships over 60s, and they're really coveted. You know, people, lots of people in the 60s who want to get into into learning, and so when we had the Mind Lab and then Tech Futures Lab, and then we launched Earth Futures Lab for more of that because we got more into the sustainability programs. We were like, Well, this is getting really complicated in a market and we were going into Australia and we we're like, We can't take three brands into one mm. market. And so Academy X was launched in January this year as the overarching sort of house of brands. Yeah. In terms of education. So we so I we love now the name by the way. Fantastic. It, yeah. it was a bit of a, a chance finding, you know, with with trying to find domain names <laughs> these days. <time. laughs> so it was, um, yeah, so it's really a house of education brands. And yep. that's the brand now that kind of capsulates everything we do, as well as what we call our partner's lounge, which is our software as a service product, which is yep. we have learning management systems and we create content for large organisations and government. Yep. And so that's a, probably about half our business. So half is sort of education in some kind of form linked to a qualification or a micro-credential, and the other half is creating uh, these SaaS-type products around learning management systems that people can, you know, 10,000, 50,000 people can learn on at a time Mm. with the content that we create for the entity that they're wanting to teach whatever that subject might be or whatever that knowledge might be. It might be around the future of energy or it might be around generative AI or it could be about water security or it could be about compliance and anti-money laundering. It could be anything. Mm. Do you think
0: traditional universities are going to be able to keep up with what's happening in the tech industry and the education sector?
1: No. No, Mm. and I think that because they have such huge overheads in their physical uh, environments. There's a few things that work against universities into the future, one is the physical, the cost of maintaining yeah. campuses, and a lot of a lot of its destination is tied to a campus. Two, money is tied to research outputs, and so you know you, you really want as many people doing PhDs and and doing doctorates, and so that they're doing. So there's a lot tied to that, which is a small percentage of people when you've got eight billion people, which are very young yeah. for the most part, or very old beyond university age. And so young people are you know they they're seeing learning as being much more short sharp we, you know, almost as you need it, yeah, and not about one block of learning for life, so that's going to be that's going to be really tricky, but also, I think this idea of you know anyone going into a physical and building like going into a lecture theater is almost now been to the point it's been diminished into almost nothing mm. um to the point you know that, that they're having to reinvent themselves as online learning like everybody else, but they don't necessarily have the technology background to understand what it is that, you know, an 18 or a 20 year old wants to experience online and what they're comparing themselves. You know, if you've got an 18 year old whose rest of their time online is spent in immersed in video games, social media, you know it's very you know, instant gratification, rich kind of content and lots of ability to kind of collaborate with others and then you go into a sort of a linear online experience with someone talking. Mm. into a class and sort of expect to take notes, that's not going to last very long. And, you know, the population is shifting globally. You know, we're getting younger. New Zealand's population is massively changing. And so it's just within a very short amount of time, Pākehā, New Zealand will become less than 50%. Māori Pacific and immigrant will become our biggest part of our population. So we've, you know, we've got a change that's happening in the very immediate future. And we're starting to happen here in Tamaki Makoto faster. And so, you know, we need to engage differently because they are typically groups that don't have the highest participation in our traditional universities. We want them to be achieving and having the best possible chance to do everything they want to do. So new models of education are going to have to do that. And and a lot of them will be, you know, homegrown. And and you'll have iwi who will create new forms of learning, for example. You'll have different cultural groups looking at ways of engaging them and, and, you know, their their kind of communities in ways that it's more meaningful. So I, I think... Everything we're seeing in you know, learning across the world doesn't matter if you're in Oxford or a, or a Cambridge or you're at London School of Business. It doesn't really matter. Everyone's going shorter, sharper, more relevant and highly engaging personal personalised education online.
0: Yeah. What about those, if we look at those 50% old Pakia that went to university that are going, ah, oh, everything's changing. The kids aren't going to learn anything if they're not going and meeting each other and socialising. What do you sort of say to those type?
1: To yeah, people? so just because I have four kids between 18 and 25 and they just that differences of seven years. They have very different experience of, of digital because mm. my 25 year old and my 23 year old uh, basically came. We're growing up at the end, end of the dial up era. Yeah, social media was only really at the latter part of their teenage years that was really kind of impacting on them. My 18 year old is a heavy gamer. You know, absolutely into it, and he is the most social by far. He has so many connections globally. He is playing games with people all over mm. the world. He's talking to them you know he's got his headphones on he's you know I, he can hear him I mean, I mean every parent has got a son particularly who yeah. who's a gamer yeah. you you know that they're, they're engaged it's no different for me than I sat in the hallway in my home growing up on the farm with the phone sitting there talking to my friends in the evening until my parents told me to get off the phone <laughs> you know we weren't face to face yeah you know i I think we just have to understand real relationships form online you know the I think the stats, I don't know exactly what they are, but I know more people now meet online as relationships than in person initially, you know, through dating sites and apps yeah. and et cetera. And so, you know, we've become really accustomed to this idea of connecting on and to, a, to a point where we can build genuine relationships and then we bring it into the real world and we kind of have this hybrid. Yeah. And I think we, we all do it. I mean, now, you know, most of us look at meetings and saying, do I need to go across town to do that meeting or could I do that here? And you know, it hasn't hasn't changed the relationships. But when we get together, it's so much better because, you know, you can get to hug them and kind of go, it's a real person. Oh, aren't you taller than I expected you'd be? Or you, yeah. know, you have that and you, have, and you sit down and, and have your cup of coffee. But we still go back to... You uh, have
0: a connection with them, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: and you build back. And you, mm. when you go back to Zoom the next week with them, you know, it's just like they're in the room because in yeah. the end you've got that relationship. The hard thing, if I go back to education, is you at some point have to meet in person. Now, we are really big advocates that yeah. you need to spend some time in person, ideally upfront, so that if you are going to go deeply into a, a fully virtual world of learning, you've already bonded physically, that you know each other, you've, you've eyeballed each other, you've sat down and broken bread together, so to yeah. speak, because then then that, that it takes a lot less time to kind of build connections than, you know, we watch, if people are doing fully online, it takes them quite a few weeks before, they get each other's humour. That they'll is that
0: just because of basic empathy that when yeah. you've sat in the room with someone, you need to have this empathy, and then like when you then meet online, you're you're, you're a physical person now. You're not just this totally two D thing on the screen. Yeah, I think
1: empathy and I think connection is still you know we as humans we we have always been around contact and and the ability you know just to see people in a three D real form feels quite different in a way, and I think but the empathy part is such a big part of it it's it's like you you kind of have this connection that takes a bit longer and and you know rules of engagement online are still being developed you know people still don't know when to to sort of jump in talk over someone yeah. you know the rules are sort of like you know hands up and not put your hand up and button and not and and then humor gets lost easily and you know yeah. actually there is a an element of mediation that happens when you're learning online that you don't have in the real world because it's self correcting in a a real world like you'll get a whole bunch of people roll their eyes at someone who keeps asking dumb questions as a facilitator or faculty member you don't have to worry about that because they kind of self-regulate yeah and in an online world sometimes you actually have to step in and go okay let's just take a pause and let's kind of look at the rules of engagement oh wow and that that takes a little bit more of a negotiation which is not an easy thing to do um sometimes because it can be quite confronting
0: well i think it's fantastic right because like if we look at um iwi in particular um in regional new zealand like being able to access education being able to access things that you're interested in and give people platforms anywhere in the country is fantastic as an aussie growing up you know there were so many regions in australia that were so remote that they couldn't even get to you know good schooling and yeah. likes so and now with online education and the ed tech the way it's blowing up it's you know, we're inspiring kids anywhere and at, at any time, and that that for me makes me very happy.
1: Yeah, and look, I can you know totally relate as, as someone growing up in a small town. When I started high school there, there were so many subjects I couldn't do that they just weren't available because they didn't have the teachers. A small school, yeah. small region, and so if if I mean I eventually I left there to come to Auckland to go to high school. Um, so I only just started my first part of high school there. But if I'd stayed there, the choices I had would have been seriously limiting. And so now. You know, people in small towns, you know, they can supplement their learning with all manner of ed tech products and mm. env- environments and courses, some formally provided by, you know, government for them, but also just the proliferation of just so many ed tech companies globally who are designed for every year level, every education system, every subject, you know, and then, of course, you find the rock stars who teach it the best. And, mm. and you know, I, I I always think about 12-year-olds. I think 12-year-olds are the most magical people in the world because... Generally they haven't had puberty enough to be really conscious of everything they do and say, but they're so smart that they've got this, I understand the world. And they are such great self-discoverers. They go out and they'll basically find a solution for everything they need to do, Mm. and then they'll utilise it. So if you watch the way that they can self-learn, you know, the amount of time, even actually last night, I was leaving work last night and one of my staff was there with a daughter and she was talking about, she was creating a stop-motion video. And she said, oh, did you, Did you know, how did you learn how to do that? And she was just like, rolled her eyes at her mum. was like, mum, you know, of course I know how to figure this out. I went and talked to my friends and we went online and we figured out the solution. And she was actually younger than 12, but it was just like this duh like mum yeah.
0: you, you know like i had this exact same thing the last mm-hmm. week with my son he was like his computer wasn't rendering fast enough for his online game and he, he was trying to figure it out what was going on and and i said oh let me figure it out and i'll come back and i have just going to do this thing downstairs and i came back up and it was working i was like what the hell how did you figure it out and he's like i went online and figured it out dad yeah and like,
1: like yeah. It's exactly like, i love that and you know of course they're building their own computers and they're doing all this stuff yeah. and things that we look at and go that's really tricky you know, yeah. they just look at it, it's like making toast. Come on, yeah. like just yeah. you know, figure it out. Yeah. And, and so that's going back to education. I think it's it's really challenging because now we've got this whole generation who go, well, I can find it faster somewhere else. I'll find it faster, and and of course that bring, brings challenges. And we've seen record absenteeism in our you know compulsory education system, and actually participation in Tertiary is down at really low levels, and of course you're seeing in the headlines with all the universities having to lay people off and things because of low numbers. It's a really interesting time for learning, and in this country we have some really big challenges around people over the age of sort of 22 going back into learning. We're very, very low participants in the OECD, and so we have very low levels of achievement beyond the kind of the compulsory three-year bachelor degree.
0: Well, so if we're thinking forward, then right, and if what you're doing now is going to be part of this legacy that we talk about of, you know, of your, of yourself and your team that's putting all these things together. Where do you, what do you hope that legacy is in the future?
1: Yeah, so we are now uh, expanding into Australia. So we've just um, gone and taken those first big steps of bringing a team and getting companies registered and et cetera there. And what we're really hoping is we take what we've learned here. We don't have any competitors in Australia, uh, which is, you know, postgraduate education. That's really kind of now, contemporary, you know, on the, mm. non, on, on the nose and taking it into Australia as well. And then this idea that we want to do more at scale. Mm-hmm. So more, if, if we can't get a typical, you know, professional service firm to get their staff into learning, let's find ways where they can engage. So they're not going to go into a formal programs. So let let's find ways of engaging them so that when they wake up tomorrow and go, how did generative AI take my job? That there doesn't come as a surprise that they've actually been yeah. on this journey of discovery and, and reskilling. And, and so... I mean, I'm seriously fearful that we have got our blinkers on here around how fast the world is changing. You know, wherever I go with all the communities online that I, you know, I I connected to every day, we are sitting in a position where we've got so much to do right now in terms of knowledge that we need a massive upgrade. You know, it's literally, if there was a software that we could kind of implant in each one of us, we'd be like four versions ahead just to get to where the start line is Mm. because we operate so much, you know, we've got a country that is the biggest employer is the government and the second biggest employer is yourself. Mm. So, you know, the competitiveness to keep learning and keep going back into, into kind of engaging with new knowledge, it's not really a huge kind of ambition. So that to me is the big driver is if we want to keep playing in this new world with, you know, extreme weather and sustainability requirements and fast knowledge with, you know, the effect of AI, how it's going to affect on so many things in automation, then that's where all the jobs will be. And so we can't rely on our children to be the ones who come in and and pick up all those jobs because we've got still a 10 or 20 year gap between them coming skilled and us having the ability to to really shape what the next 10 or 20 years looks like. And so every part of my day is thinking about how do I get more adults to recognise how limited their current knowledge is compared to what they need to know to do good smart decisions in their day job. And forgetting the next job but even today's job that you know strategically they need a lot more knowledge a lot more data and the ability to have real insight to what's happening and foresight to kind of plan for it
0: yeah it's a really interesting time i think i think a lot about that myself right and so yeah i'm i'm really curious to ask you this last question that we've been asking people in season two and so i you know i'm a big believer in knowledge and information sharing and that's part of my passion of doing this podcast in the first place is just trying to share people's knowledge and information so that we can all learn um and so i've been asking people what's the one thing that you would want to share with someone whether but be a ted talk be a podcast be a a book or a person or a or a thing what's the one thing that you go i'm going to put this in the show notes everyone should go off and check this out
1: Look, I think I'm a massive fan of podcasts, and there's one that I always recommend to people who just don't know where to start called Hard Fork. Mm -hmm. Um, It's available on all all channels. And Hard Fork is two um, New York Times um, journalists, and they look at the tech insights for the week, what's happening in tech, and in a really fun, engaging way, and it makes it accessible, but it also blows your mind every time because you're just going...
0: What's next,
1: yeah. Yeah, and, and I think if having a view into um, into the future is, is really easy to see through the US and sort of Silicon Valley type of view. And that's yeah. the other thing I'd recommend is I say often to people saying, okay, so let's just imagine tomorrow you have to move to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Now find your job. Go to the job boards, go to the websites with jobs and try to find the job that you can do that will give you the same rewarding experience of what you have today without having a massive back step Either financially or in terms of responsibility, or if your job title is the same in that u s job board, could you do what they say you need to have? Yeah, and that's a pretty sobering experience. so I think when you start to understand this world of where we're heading, because they, they, you know and of course it's not just in the US of course, it can be in yeah. many other countries, it's yeah. just from an accessibility point of view, it's easy comparison, yeah, and um you know I think So sometimes I think it's about finding things that you can learn from and and add to your kind of arsenal of knowledge. And sometimes it's a little bit of the stick, which is I still have a long way to go to keep pushing myself to keep learning and to understand what is coming down down the path. And sometimes it's the best way to see that is trying to find your own job right now. And does it even Mm. exist in a sort of a slightly more future-focused world?
0: Mm, Interesting. So hard fork, I'm going to definitely go off and look at that myself. And then just to follow up on that question as someone who owns a recruitment company i often have this conversation and we talk about the niche niche levels of skills that you need to be to be hyper successful and so that's like the silicon valley thing is a good reference to that where i think that because they have a better education system uh in the states in terms of technology at least they they can get nicher and deeper in their skills and become way more specialized and so if you like if you're in the States and you have a pricing issue on SAS, there's no matter what town you're in, there's a, a, an absolute expert weapon that you know you can go and talk to that will totally. give you some time. And so do you think with what we're doing with this smaller bite-sized education is going to help people to get niche, like that skill set niche in their skill?
1: Well, I think New Zealand's only solution going forward is to be as niche as possible. Do the weird polymers, do the weird kind yeah. of SaaS products that nobody else can do. We can never compete on The mainstream. So we, you know, Paul Callaghan, you know, the Callaghan Innovation kind of concept is New Zealand does really weird things well that nobody else wants to touch. And so, you know, I think we have to kind of figure out like what is the smallest part of that big problem Mm. that actually still has a million or 10 million customers who no one is solving for them because it's not a big enough problem for for a Silicon Valley company to do. And so I think when you start to look at the New Zealand companies who do really well, they do things that are really unsexy. They yeah. do things that nobody else is like, no, in Silicon Valley, I don't want to do things around tax or counting. Yeah. I don't want to do things around kind of these really niche little weird things. That's what we do well. And and actually, I think we should always stick to that. And it's been, a you know, going back to Paul Callahan, it's what he keeps saying is for us to have 100, 100 million dollar companies, and you know that was 10 years ago, so they probably should be bigger than 100 million dollar companies. Mm. We need to be doing, you know, he didn't, I don't think he said the weird shit, but that's basically what he meant. Yep. It's the stuff that no one else wants to do, and to me, that's that's the kind of the kind of the really essence of what we are as a country.
0: Lots of sexy people doing the unsexy work. Totally, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, well, on no, that note, hey, thanks for coming on, Francis. It's been fantastic. and I'll let you get on. And enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. Well, Francis is off now, and I'm sitting here contemplating how many people listening to this podcast might have might have been. Educated through one of her facilities at some stage or how many people she's influenced or helped influence through what she's been doing and so edtech is such an important technology. It's, it's a, such a big wave of what's happening now and how we can immersify and, and educate ourselves online like things like podcasts and blogs and like reading information online is where I get a lot of my information and so it's really interesting to see how my kids and other future generations are going to be going off and learning and so I really enjoyed chatting and listening to Francis I feel really empowered by conversations like that because it's just amazing to hear what such cool people are doing and you know I'm definitely going to try and figure out how I can get to that conference. at that house that she talked about, that was phenomenal. Um, and see if I can get myself a a Euro ticket there. And so Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you're listening and loving to the, love the podcast. I hope you're subscribing. You know, I harp on about it, but it's only through our subscribers that we're able to keep bringing this to you. So please jump on whatever platform you're listening to right now and subscribe. And then do me another favor, share this podcast if you really liked it with some friends or go off and comment on one of the posts that we've done online or, or like it and share it and do all the things just to help us keep building the audience. And so have a great day, have a great night, whatever time it is you're listening to this. Thank you so much for all your, your time and on this podcast and any others that you've watched and listened to. And until next time, take care.
1: This podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Films.